This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with Roland Phillips about his new book, A Spy Named Orphan, The Enigma of Donald McLean. You tell a wonderful and extraordinary story, Roland, a work of biographical nonfiction that reads like a Shakespeare play or a novel by John le Carré. But for those of us who maybe don't remember who Donald McLean was, perhaps you could begin by locating him in 20th century time and space. A spy working for whom under what mask of identity in which pivotal years of the Cold War? The straight line of the facts, Roland, before we come to the twists and turns in the plot. Donald McLean served in the British Foreign Office from 1935 to 1951 when he defected to Moscow. In that time, he was a high-flying diplomat uh, who was heading for the very highest reaches of the Foreign Office. His pivotal years of espionage were when he served in the British Embassy in Washington, 1944 to 48. Uh, He was recruited at Cambridge. He was one of the Cambridge Five. And he was, uh, in my opinion, the most dangerous of the Cambridge Five. He gave away the shape of Europe after the war. His influences still felt today. And apart from anything else, he was a completely fascinating character. That he is, and you make him so in your book. So let us begin with his family background. Uh, Where from? And uh, talk about his schooling and then, you know, his his father and and then on to Cambridge. McLean's father, also called Donald, uh, was a a liberal member of parliament. And when he died, when his son Donald was at Cambridge, was a cabinet minister. And one of the uh, reasons they never caught on to his son before they did was because they believed him to be, as most of the uh, graduates in the Foreign Office were, an English gentleman who could be absolutely trusted. What they never realised, because his father was a successful parliamentarian and a knight of the realm, was that his father had been born in pretty good poverty in a croft and had worked his way up and didn't and the family did not have the privileged background that nearly all the other entrants into foreign office had what sir donald chose uh, he was one of five children he was the middle one of five children much the most brilliant and the hopes of the family rested on him he went to an extraordinary school called Gresham School in Norfolk, which was the seat of the liberal establishment. It had in it um, many of the prominent communists of of the uh, 1920s and 30s. And it also had and it had encouraged those um, students, all, all male, because it appealed to the it wasn't like the big traditional public schools that concentrated on enabling their pupils to go and run the empire. It believed in public service and uh, and students, instead of studying classics, studied languages and and mathematics and science. And so it it was of enormous appeal to those um, liberals who, who 
disliked um, the whole empire-based schooling of, of the British. It had, I think, critically, a very particular disciplinary code in it, which when the, when the boys joined the school, they took an oath not to smoke, swear, or think impure thoughts. Extraordinary to ask a teenage boy not to think impure thoughts. And if he did, he was meant to turn himself in uh, to the authorities. If he didn't turn himself in, he could, could be encouraged by his schoolfellows to turn himself in. And if that didn't work, they could turn him in. Uh, as W.H. Auden, who was a year or two above McLean at the school, said, that there was nothing like this system for encouraging remote introverts. Also a great teaching for spies, because it teaches you to lead a double life and, and to practice the art of duplicity. Absolutely right. And on top of that, Sir Donald McLean, the, the older, the father, was a very strict Presbyterian from his Scottish island upbringing, wouldn't allow any smoking, wouldn't allow any drinking uh, in the house, and said his children must follow their own conscience. He didn't mean communism, I think he meant focusing on God. So you had this combination of factors with the weight of expectation upon this uh, boy that he was the first generation of his family to go to a good school and the, would be in the first generation of his family to go to a university with this strange, as you say, system that would, would send you inside yourself with a very strong moral impulse to exactly follow where your conscience led you. So uh, as well as it would develop a front um, in McLean's case, because he was had to be successful to live up to his expectations. So on the outside, he was a very successful schoolboy scholarship winner, captain of games, all that sort of thing. On the inside, he would have felt he had to follow his true beliefs. When put in the context of the times, um, so the the First World War had uh, killed many of the former pupils of Gresham's. He, he'd gone there just at the time of the general strike when the whole of Britain was paralysed by everyone was on strike, um, all the public workers and dockers. And for the first time, people of his type, they were living in quite a big house in London, saw the real plight of the workers. Then it, the Depression was hitting. There were marches, the hunger marches, as they were known on London, from the starving unemployed from the north of England. And on top of all that, there was fascism just starting up in Europe. So Maclean's highly developed conscience would have been heavily pricked by by what he saw going on around him. And at at, at Cambridge, it leads him into... Communism. I mean, it leads Absolutely. to... Okay, so talk about communism. This is the leading current of opinion for idealistic intellectuals in the 30s in, in England, as it was in the United States. Absolutely. And, and the um, if you had a, a, a soul, um, you were a communist then because of what you could see going on around you. And and when McLean went to Cambridge, he, he immediately joined the 
Cambridge University Socialist Society, which had in it already as members Kim Philby and Guy Burgess and Anthony Blunt. Now, the they, and, and who are they? I mean, don't skip over those so quickly. No, no, no. They, well, they were all recruited after McLean to be um, spies for the for for the for Moscow Center for the Kremlin. Um, so they, between them, with another man called John Cancross, made up what became as known as the Cambridge Five, or as they were known in in uh, Moscow Center in the NKVD, the KGB's predecessor. They were known as the Magnificent Five. So this is where they met in Cambridge, and at the end of. Donald McLean's first year in Cambridge, his father died quite suddenly, at which point he erupted into communism. He wrote communist doggerel in the, his college magazine. Interestingly, he gave an interview to Granta magazine, um, the, one of the university magazines, where he avoided saying what his political affiliations were, where others had quite happily, the man before him had said, I am a communist. So he was already displaying the dissembling side. Uh, Talk about that. I mean, he says that he he has yeah. three alternate personalities or personae, and, and tell me who they were. They were the hearty, um, the um, sort of the rugger-playing, games-playing, Party, which he he emphatically wasn't, but that was a very specific Cambridge type. In fact, slightly on the right wing, that was the establishment. But he could play that part. He could play it. Um, but later on in his Cambridge career, there was a famous scuffle um, between the left wing and the Harties, um, on which he was very much on the left wing side. There was the East seat, um, and Maclean did always appreciate the arts and in particular literature throughout his life. So that was another part of him. He called, he called that part of him Cecil in velvet trousers. That's right. Absolutely. And there was the SWAT and McLean undoubtedly worked extremely hard. Yeah, but he's also an ex extremely uh, fluent linguist in, in, in French and German. Absolutely. That's, that's what he's studying with his father's aim, while his father was alive, that he should go into the Foreign Office. But as McLean, as Donald McLean got deeper into his communist beliefs after his father died, he in fact decided that what he wanted to do was go to the Soviet Union and teach English to the workers. That was, would be where he was most useful. So that was the situation in 1934 when he graduated with a first-class degree in French and German. He was set to go to, to Russia to teach English, much to his mother's disappointment. But then, shortly after he left, his friend Kim Philby, who graduated the year, a year ahead of him, and had or had been to Austria to see the uh, rise of fascism in, fascism in Austria, and then married a Viennese communist. Um, asked him to supper in his London flat about two months after uh, McLean graduated. Unbeknownst to McLean, at this point Philby had already been recruited as a spy, and it, one of his first jobs as a as a spy, was to suggest other people, uh, others of his contemporaries, who might also be recruited, and Donald McLean was top of that list. Philby's spymaster was an extraordinary man called Arnold Deutsch, 
who was brilliant. He had got his PhD at Vienna University before the by the age of twenty four, and uh, he had also made it. He was in fact his his subject of study was chemistry, but he had a very strong sideline in uh, in psychology. And after he graduated, uh, he was also a communist. He went to work for Wilhelm Reich, uh, Freud's disciple, as part of Reich's sex poll movement, as it was known, which Reich, who was known as the prophet of the better orgasm, because he didn't believe that anyone could be politically liberated uh, until they were sexually liberated. Deutsch set up um, the sex polls publishing arm called Munster Verlag, um, which um, got him into trouble because, as you can imagine, the sort of literature that goes with such beliefs in the 1930s, um, in repressive 1930s in Vienna, um, got him into uh, trouble as a, a putative pornographer with the police. So he had to flee Vienna and he came to England where his cousin Oscar was a very rich man and could sponsor him because Oscar Deutsch had started the Odeon cinema chain, uh, which was an Odeon stands for Oscar Deutsch entertains our nation. So Deutsch, with his psychological background, came to London and he realised, and it's, I think it's the only, it's, it is the only time in the 20th century that this could be the case in Britain, that because of the political climate, uh, you could recruit spies for purely ideological reasons. Before and after that, there have been blackmail, honey traps, bribery. Those are the reasons that recruits a spy. But Deutsch, with his psychological acuity, realised that this was his moment. And further to that, he realised that if you got the young people just out of university, uh, any left-wing leanings on display before that could be written off to the follies of youth. And if you pick the right people, they would work their way up to the height of the professions that ran Britain. And um, and you would have spies deeply embedded in the British establishment. Briefly say how he analyzed uh, McLean. He, he called yes. them the, the infantile need for praise and reassurance, right? Yes. Yes. He, he had various criteria for the ideal agent, uh, which were predilection for secrecy, which is a quite obvious one. Uh, and, but most importantly, I think in McLean's case, uh, uh, infantile need for praise and reassurance, as you say. And I think it's notable throughout McLean's life. First of all, he had this very uh, domineering father, very strict and... Um, certain father who had, I think, not given him that, that much praise and reassurance, but had given him the moral compass we talked about earlier. And as uh, McLean's career and life went on, when he wasn't given praise and reassurance, mostly from Moscow Centre, that's when the cracks that we'll come on to talk about started to appear. So Deutsch was absolutely, I think, um, spot on when he saw this as a um, as part of McLean's character and an essential part of how he would be handled as an agent. 
he's taken into the, the British Foreign Office at the same time, more or less, he's been recruited as a Soviet agent, and and then and the two the two they, very much yeah. go together because I uh, Deutsch said to him, you know, you could really help, most of all, help uh, the communist cause, which McLean believed was the only way to world peace. Uh, you can most of all help the communist cause not by coming to a Soviet Union teaching English, but going to the foreign office because you're clever enough. All right. So his first overseas posting is to Paris in 1938. Do this um, briefly and and we get get to Yeah. McLean does two years in London when he's meant to be a sleeper agent in the foreign office, but he's immediately... The Spanish Civil War is just getting underway. He's in the department dealing with Spain, and he's, from the off, carrying out briefcase loads full of documents, thousands of documents um, every year. There's no security in the Foreign Office at all. There wasn't even a security officer until the Second World War started. In fact, he's so productive that they decide he needs a handler of his own. So they send um, Kitty Harris who's 10 years older than him, who born in London, brought up in Canada, had uh, been married to Earl Browder, the secretary of the American Communist Party. And uh, she comes to London to look after McLean's um, extraordinarily productive espionage. They quite quickly fall in love, or he falls in love with her. They start an affair, which Moscow sent to find out about. But because he's so important to them already... They don't recall Kitty Harris. They don't drop him. So she goes with him to Paris in 1938, which is uh, he goes to Paris actually on the day the Munich Agreement is signed. So from then on, he is um, able to track the Paris embassy is the fulcrum of of messages coming from Berlin. Um, Obviously, France herself, who's uh, Britain's closest ally, um, to London. So he sees absolutely everything to do with the um, the oncoming war um, in Paris and passes it through Kitty Harris straight to Moscow. Also in Paris, he, he meets the woman he marries. Explain that. Yes. So in uh, 1939, November 1939, after, after the war has started, he went, many of the people, many of his fellow communists turn against communism when the Nazi-Soviet pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, is signed in, at the end of August 1939. But McLean has, a, I think, a very pure ideological notion of communism and, and sticks to it, as do the other Cambridge spies. He's never at ease in the Foreign Office society. They're expected to all have private incomes and entertain on those. He prefers hanging out on the left bank and meeting with artists and intellectuals. And one day, November 1939, he walks into a cafe on the Rive Gauche and sees the elfin figure of Melinda Marling and falls completely in love with her. She is a um, person who loves danger, I believe. She's an American. She comes from a very broken home, I mean, very fractured home. Um, She hasn't uh, taken to education much. She uh, has come to Paris with her sister, one of her sisters, to enrol at the Sorbonne. When the American embassy are telling all their citizens to go home as the war starts, she's decided to stay and live out the danger. 
So she has this uh, diplomat who's fallen for her, but she wants absolutely nothing to do with him because he's a he's a stuffed shirt British diplomat. He's, this is how he presents himself. But he is so deeply in love with her that he takes another enormous risk and tells her he is a communist agent, at which point they start an affair. And uh, so, again, she pushes the... Um, the danger to the fact, to the point where she went, her only way out of France now, um, because she can't go back to the United States, we're now into uh, the middle of 1940, is to marry him, at which point she can be, uh, she can go with him to England. But she won't marry him until five days before the Nazis arrive in Paris. And the only black mark on McLean's file throughout his career is that he was off getting married rather than evacuating the embassy. So they get married in June 1940, eventually make their way to Bordeaux, where they get on a ship that then dodges the U-boats and brings them to England. Briefly, uh, the year is 1940-44. He's in London. He's sending documents, codes, and so on to the Soviets. He's a very active, uh, uh, productive agent. But he is also, for the time being, he's able to serve both his masters. Yes. And he does, he serves both his masters, really, until um, till the end of his time in in Washington. Uh, And this is the, uh, he's able to keep the two masters sort of combined in him. I, I believe he is a, a genuine patriot, even if he's even as he's um, sending the secrets out, he believes in Britain's role in the world, but he still believes that communism, particularly now when Russia joins the war in 1941, uh, is the only possible uh, way of rolling back fascism, and in that he's he's not actually wrong, but he he is able he works extraordinarily hard. It was later described as having a, a watchmaker's mind, and this enables him to, and he's fire watching on the roof of the Foreign Office at night, so he's he's working fantastically hard to serve both. His All masters. right, and then he go- and then in 1944 he goes to Washington. And um, he's promoted. Uh, he's sent to Washington. He has. Um, he he goes. He sails. They sail. Uh, of course, they went by ship, um, and they sail to New York. And one of the extraordinary things I saw in the files in the the the, the newly released, newly declassified files was uh, Melinda's. Their landing cards as they arrived on the ship in June 1944, just after D-Day. And uh, he has put under address the British Embassy in Washington. She has put that too, and then it's been crossed out, and it's got her parents' address on Park Avenue in, in New York. And the reason he wanted her to stay in New York, she's pregnant, is that he's actually gone slightly earlier than expected because his predecessor is, has been struck ill. And uh, he's, his handler hasn't had time to follow him or get there ahead of him. So he has to go to New York to get his telegrams out of, to Russia. 
So it's, it's critically important that Melinda is in New York to enable him to visit frequently and uh, transmit messages to the Soviet Union. He's now the first sec- secretary in the Soviet embassy in, in Washington. In the British embassy. In the, yeah, yes. I'm sorry, in the British embassy. And he's, but he's using Melinda's parents' address on Park Avenue in order to be able to come to New York frequently to be able to send messages to Russia from New York. That's okay. At, from from the New York consulate, yes. At, the great, as the first secretary of the British Embassy in Washington, starting in 1944, he has access to everything. He has access to absolutely everything. He has, uh, well, he has access to the, to the chancery through which all the messages go. And at that time, um, as I say, the, the war is, is only a matter of time before the Allies win the war. And the Churchill and Roosevelt are already planning the shape of Europe in the peace. They, they're allies of, of Stalin, of course, but at the same time keen to keep communism back as far as possible. So the, the great conferences is the, the Yalta Conference and the Potsdam Conference, where they discuss the shape of Europe. McLean saw and passed on all the telegrams between Churchill and Roosevelt with their negotiating positions to the Soviet Union. So Stalin at the Potsdam Conference, for example, had the absolute picture. So McLean had passed the telegram and, and I went back to the original, there's only a snippet of it decoded of his treachery, but I went back to the original in the Foreign Office files, where, for example, um, Churchill and Roosevelt agree where they would like the borders of Poland to be post-war. But they say, but if Molotov is adamant, we'll move them 200 miles to the west. And guess what? Molotov was adamant because he knew this was their bottom line in the negotiation. So that sort of material was invaluable to to Stalin. All right. And then he comes back. So he is an extraordinarily effective uh, spy and uh, very damaging, of course, to the American side. But then he comes back to England in 1949, eight. Yeah, well, before that, he he um, he. What he does post-war uh, is he still has this position of great responsibility, which enables him to give away the formation of NATO, the Marshall Plan, all the um, great events. But I think most critically, he um, in 1947, uh, 1946. I'm sorry, he is. Um, appointed as one of two uh, British diplomats to the combined policy commission that uh, decides atomic energy and uh, military um, policy. So he is on this very, very high level and totally secret committee um, that that he is his part of his job on the committee is to negotiate for the supply of uranium um, from the Congo, from the Belgian Congo, um, and so he is able to tell Stalin exactly how many 
atom bombs the Americans are capable of making, amongst other things, which is nothing, not nearly as many as they claim to have been making. And I think that information gave uh, the Russians the, the confidence to accelerate their own nuclear program. And indeed, they did explode their first test bomb two years ahead of where anyone in the West thought they would. And I think that's a straight line from what McLean was telling them. It also, in a sort of irony, well, not an irony to McLean, because he always thought this would be the way, when the um, blockade of Berlin started in 1948 uh, and the Americans were sabre-rattling about how many atom bombs they could deploy, he was able to show that they had nothing like that, that many atom bombs, which then stop the Russians escalating it militarily. And so vital and so secret was this work that when he was due to um, rotate out of Washington to another posting uh, in 1940, late 1946, he wrote a letter to the Foreign Office saying he would rather stay because it would interfere with his secret work um, if, if he moved and never a truer word was, was spoken. So he was in Washington until 1948. And then he goes to, to Cairo. Talk about that briefly, because he now begins to, he was always a heavy drinker, but now he begins to drink very heavily to behave in a very wild manner. He does, and he's already, as the Cold War has got underway in his time in Washington, he's already begun drinking more and the, the, the cracks are beginning to show he, he's not able to be the unified figure and he's he's on record at, at a certain Washington dinner parties, uh, grand dinner parties given by Joe Alsop and others as uh, slating the Americans for being capitalist and, um, and he criticises the Secretary of State Jimmy Burns which is an extraordinary act um, for a high-ranking diplomat. And so, so the cracks are beginning to show. Um, when he sent to Cairo in 1948 with, with a huge promotion, the Soviets don't understand the importance of Cairo. They're completely focused on Washington, and they think Cairo is a diplomatic backwater. Actually, it's crucial at the time as the um, diplomatic fulcrum of the, of the Middle East certainly as far as Britain are concerned. Um, and they don't even, we don't know his handler's name there. They start to ignore him. They start not to give him the praise and reassurance he requires, as identified by Deutsch years earlier. He also, McLean, loathes the, the British colonial presence in Egypt, propping up the appalling regime of King Farouk. Um, and he sees, for the first time, really terrible poverty. So a combination of the uh, Cold War getting colder and his own exposure to, to colonialism at its worst. And the first sign of this is in 1949, when he uh, leads a disastrous boat trip up the Nile picnic, um, which all goes wrong for various reasons. There's not enough wind to to carry the boats and they've drunk very very heavily on the boat and the picnic uh, the whole occasion comes to a sorry end when in a drunken brawl on the riverbank uh, Donald McLean breaks a fellow senior diplomat's 
British diplomat's leg. What's extraordinary about this story and thereafter, McLean, none of this gets onto its file. The diplomat in question goes back to England and is seen in the Foreign Office on uh, in calipers, and yet he never says, um, I got in a fight with McLean and he broke my leg. So this is a pretty good disaster that is not followed up. At the same time as this, and McLean doesn't know this, uh, the Venona operation is underway in Washington. Um, the brilliant Meredith Gardner has identified that there's been a uh, spy in the Washington embassy uh, in 1944-5 and has alerted um, the British Secret Service and the Foreign Office. And the Foreign Office's first reaction to that is it won't be a senior man. We must look at any secretaries who had a nervous breakdown at around that time. So this extraordinary myopia uh, is in place, coinciding with McLean starting to act out in, in, a, in an alcoholic way. Okay, but... We go. Let's get back to London. I mean, in, in in Cairo, he's there for two years. He's drinking heavily, and it's not just the one incident on the Nile. It's it's many incidents. He's out all night. He, com- he comes home without his shoes, or you know, covered with mud, and and uh, it's a nightmare situation for his wife and children. But but so but still, it he he's it doesn't show up on his file. Meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, the American signals intelligence has begun to suspect the president, know that there's a spy in in the British service, and so now he's back in London in 1949. No, he comes. He comes to London in 1950, middle of 1950, after following his last drunken act, which involves trashing the American ambassador's secretary's flat. In Cairo. In, in, in Cairo. Okay. Now he's now he's back in London, but he's still in the Foreign Office. He's still beautifully dressed, going to work in the in the Foreign Office. He still has access to uh, material that might be of use to the Soviets. But he but he's drinking more and more heavily because now the uh, clearly the 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 British and the Soviets are on opposite sides, and it's... It, it's unbearable to him, yes. It's really unbearable. It's unbearable, okay. Because the, the truth is, is that he actually hates capitalism, in, yes. in it, particularly in its most vulgar American form. Which, considering he's married to an American yes. and a well-off American, is really extraordinary. Yes, yes I mean, he's a man of... Many sorrows at this point. <laughs> yes. Okay. He is. All right. But, and, and so it's extraordinary. So he, he sent home from, uh, he comes home from Cairo after this appalling last escapade in, in, uh, in the ambassador secretary's flat. Um, he's, he's Melinda, his wife, says the British ambassador, Donald's having a nervous breakdown. He must go home. So none of this, that, that flat wrecking doesn't get on his file either. He has a period of sick leave and then says to the powers that be, I don't want another foreign posting. Um, I, I I would like to stay in, in England. So they make him head of the American department, coinciding neatly with the beginning of the Korean War. So there's this man who's crashed out 
um, uh, drinking, who is loathes capitalism, but his masters in the Foreign Office have no idea of this and give him a very, very responsible job at a, another critical time in world history, in 20th century history. And um, so time, the Venona operation in, in uh, Signals Intelligence is proceeding and they realise that the Soviets really listened to this man. And so they've decided it, it must be someone with a proper foreign policy knowledge. And they've got McLean's name on a on a short list of people who could have seen the relevant telegrams. But they still they just discount it because he's such a fine diplomat. Um, they have no notion of these um, anti-capitalist, anti-American outbursts. When do they catch on to him? When, when do they identify him as and, and give him the name Curzon? So they identify him in April 1951 because Meredith Gardner and his team decode it. So they keep having his name on the on the list. Uh, they've sent Kim Philby, who who got him into the spying world 16 years earlier, to Washington as head of station at MI6, who immediately realizes that the spy Homer, which is his code name, that they're looking for is is his recruit Donald McLean. Philby says to Moscow Center, "What uh, what do you want me to do?" And they say, "You have to warn him before he's." brought in for questioning because he'll give away you and and all the other spies or any of the other spies we have to wit the Cambridge Five. Um, so uh, that is in 950. Philby is working out how to do this. Meantime, uh, in April 1951, um, they the uh, Americans decode this snippet from the telegram sent the very, on McLean's very first day in New York in June 1944, which says Homer will be coming to Tyre, which is what they codename New York, frequently to visit his pregnant wife. And it's those, the identification that the spy has a pregnant wife that uh, gives him away. But they decide not to question him at once. They codename him, the British Secret Service codename him Curzon. They put a watcher on him. Partly, they still don't quite believe it, and they hope he'll incriminate himself. But partly also, they're very aware that uh, Venona is so secret, it would be inadmissible in court. So um, so they uh, want to be absolutely certain. So he's, he's going about out his daily round in London from the Foreign Office to his club for lunch, a short walk across St James's Park. And he's a very tall man, McLean, and it's noticeable several of his fellow diplomats, and certainly McLean himself, sort of a bit puzzled by um, their friend striding across St James's Park uh, with this rather shorter man in a trilby hat and a raincoat scurrying after him. And the, um, the the watchers' reports are all part of the declassified material I managed to see. But what is extraordinary and what uh, comes out of it is that they end each day at 6.10. They say Curzon got on his train to Victoria and they start again the following morning at 9.15 where they say Curzon arrived off his train to Victoria and it's apparent 
that the watchers did not watch him after he got on his train uh, or at weekends. Um, because he's living in the country in, in Kent with his wife. Because he's living yeah. in the country. Okay. And, they, and they feel they would be too conspicuous if they watch him in his village. I mean, they don't seem to understand that they're pretty conspicuous in London. So this is, um, McLean knows this perfectly well, and as we'll come to see, uses it to his advantage and the embarrassment of his fellow diplomats and indeed the spies. Tell that, tell, tell, go straight to that story. Tell that story. Go to the 21st of May. Yes. What happens... Um, the week before, McLean defects on the 21st of May. The week before, Guy Burgess has been sent home from America in disgrace. Um, too many drunken episodes, too much, too many seduce, too much seducing of, of young men. Guy Burgess is known to be Kim Philby's best friend. Philby uses him, and Lodger indeed, in Washington. Philby says when Burgess is going home, he says... You've got to tell McLean to get out, but don't you go as well, um, because you're my best friend. And that'll give me away. So uh, a week, uh, the week on the early in May, uh, Guy Burgess arrives, and we know from the watchers' reports that he 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 goes into the Foreign Office and sees McLean, and then they have a series of lunches in the week up to the 21st of May, where they're clearly plotting their defection. And one of the things that interests me about that is McLean, who only a year before has been having these terrible um, alcoholic incidents, now seems absolutely calm. And there's a report of a lunch on the Wednesday before the Friday when they defect, where they meet in a pub in London Sloan Square. And the watchers report Burgess coming in and out and looking agitated, where's McLean? is icy calm and stays inside and after this lunch goes to the local department store and orders curtains for his new house in the country. So McLean is, is now that he is about to become an undivided man, has regained his equilibrium. On the Friday itself, he arrives at, um, at work as normal. It's his birthday. It's his 38th birthday. He's... Uh, rung his mother and begged her to have lunch with him, which she can't do. And she says, no, 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 we'll have lunch next week. He says, please, it's my birthday. And she says, no, no, we'll have lunch next week. But he arrives at work, does a morning's work, and uh, then meets a, a very great friend of his for lunch in the foreign office. They walk over to Soho, where they run into the writer Cyril Connolly on their way, Connolly uh, is a friend of McLean's, and only um, three weeks previously, McLean has crashed into his flat in, uh, at about midnight, where Connolly and his wife are entertaining, and passed, McLean has passed out in the hall, and Connolly says his guests have to step over him and how inconvenient that is. And then he puts a blanket on him, and McLean gets up and goes to work next morning. But Connolly notes that um, his friend is looking particularly healthy and chipper as he goes to lunch after lunch McLean comes back to work has quite a dull afternoon's work he has to see a Argentinian ambassador about some minor trade agreement then he, he says to his people in his department that he's head of 
don't forget I've I've got tomorrow off. In those days, the Foreign Office worked on Saturday mornings, and they'll say, uh, no, let's hope a revolution doesn't break out in South in a South American country while you're off on holiday. He says goodbye to his boss uh, in the Foreign Office courtyard and is seen by the watchers getting onto his train with his dry cleaning uh, under his arm. And that is the last the Foreign Office sees of him. He gets home and uh, Melinda has prepared a birthday supper for him and a friend of his who he says is called Roger Stiles. Melinda knows perfectly well that it's Guy Burgess, but it's most convenient for her when questioned afterwards if she thinks of him as Roger Stiles. Burgess arrives in a hard car. They have dinner. After dinner, McLean says, I know it's my birthday, but we've got to go and visit a sick friend in Andover. And they take off in the car and drive to Southampton, which is about 90 miles away, and jump on board a boat that sails at midnight called the Falaise. The Falaise has been chosen for their escape because the most, the illegals uh, helping them in London, um, helping them escape, believe, as they would, that the ports are all being watched and they don't have time to make false passports that would work. Um, so they found this ship, uh, a man called Yuri Modin, who is their, their handler in London, has found a ship that ostensibly just cruises up and down the channel um, on uh, Saturday and Sunday and doesn't put into to a foreign port, so passports aren't required. But in fact, it puts into San Malo for breakfast on Saturday morning. So this is the ideal um, escape for them. So um, McLean and Burgess see the last of England uh, on his 38th birthday. The next morning, they get off the ship in uh, San Malo jump in a taxi to take them to Rennes, which is about 40 miles on, where they then get on a train to Paris. They cross Paris. They're in Bern on the Saturday night. They have to lie up in a hotel in Bern. Uh, McLean lies on his bed reading um, uh, the collected works of Jane Austen, which Burgess has thoughtfully packed. Burgess cruises around Bern looking at the motor show that's on. And uh, on the Tuesday following, they um, fly from Bern to Stockholm and then from Stockholm to Prague. They're behind the Iron Curtain. So the last Westerner to see them is the taxi driver who drove them on that Saturday uh, morning. Uh, he's the last Westerner to see them for the next five years. And how does this news break? And I mean, it's this, this has got to be a tremendous scandal in in the british press well it's they really so the, everyone realizes on monday morning that mclean's gone when melinda rings and says has donald come in and um and they realize exactly what's happened but they suppress the news most appallingly they suppress the news from um from the their american allies who after all have led the um uh, investigation that uncovered Homer to the extent that the head of MI6, Britain's um, Foreign Intelligence Service, is in Washington, is in the FBI building, seeing Hoover five days after the defection and is stopped by Robert Lomfair, who's the FBI officer who's led the 
um, Venona investigation on behalf of uh, the FBI. And Lonfair says to him, uh, to the British man, how are you getting on with the search for Homer? And the head of MI6 tells the brazen lie where he says, we've got six or seven people in the frame, but nothing definite yet when they know their man has gone. So there's this atmosphere where the Brits, who are, we have nothing to offer in the intelligence world compared to the Americans post-war, um, and yet we're lying to our, our worst allies. Five days later, the press get wind that their missing diplomats publish the story, at which point all hell breaks loose. And uh, indeed, when I started out by saying the effects of McLean's defection are still being felt, it completely shatters any trust in in the establishment that this that a diplomat can a trusted diplomat can be supported while doing such appalling espionage, and um, it's 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 the end of trust. This and other spy cases ending in the Profumo scandal, where the Minister of War slept with a prostitute he was sharing with a Soviet intelligence officer lead to the absolute destruction of the establishment and uh, and let alone the mistrust between um, the British government, the United States government and the intelligence services. So it, it's an absolute catastrophe when the news breaks. All right. Soon the other other Cambridge spies are rounded up. I mean, Burgess has escaped with McLean. Philby immediately comes under terrible mistrust, but um, denies everything. There's no evidence against him, so he is not. Uh, he has yet to be sacked um, from MI6. His own exposure doesn't come for another ten years. Uh, Blunt is not. Is also not. A, until Philby defects himself in the early 1960s. Um, so for now, it, although they're pretty sure Philby's a spy, uh, the rest of the ring are are still intact, minus uh, McLean and Burgess. Yes, but as you say, it's a catastrophe for the the British establishment, Foreign Service, from which yes. it's, it's an open question as to whether they've recovered. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that um, the novels of John le Carre um, through the 70s and 80s and the mistrust between what he calls the cousins of our intelligence services and yours um, show that, that, that this is this blind British trust and class and empire and everything is, is, is unfit for the post-war world. And okay, and McLean, the last twenty odd years of his life, he lives in in Moscow and be, and yes. becomes. Uh, so there's a further shock when in 1953, Melinda and their three children um, defect shortly after Stalin and, and and absolutely related to Stalin's death. Shortly after Stalin's death, they they've been living in Switzerland to get away from the attention in England. They too defect. So the McLean family are reunited in Russia. Donald McLean, when he re-emerges in 1956 into public eye, is comes unlike Burgess, who by, who is missing England and will see anyone, will 
and is drinking himself to death, which follows reasonably soon. Um, Donald McLean, now he's a unified soul. He doesn't have to pretend to be anything that he isn't. Um, works hard. He gets a job in a think tank, academic institute, writes several extremely learned papers under on foreign policy under the name Mark Fraser, so he doesn't get muddled up with McLean. He's got his family there. He enjoys the um, his children becoming good Soviet citizens, young pioneers and so on. And he seems to be fulfilled. And that remains the case. He doesn't, he will never speak to any journalists. He only speaks to a British journalist a few days before he dies in 1983. And that is his life. And he's slightly on the distant wing of, of Soviet society. He still wants to improve it. And his life seems to be pretty regular. They've got a nice flat until Philby arrives. And Philby, who has to betray everyone he comes close to, pinches Melinda McLean, uh, takes Melinda McLean away from Donald. And they live together for, th for three years in the mid-60s. And that is, of course, the ultimate betrayal to the man he recruited to the cause and who gave such outstanding service to the cause. McLean changes his name back to, McLe to Donald McLean when he writes a book that is published in England uh, in 1970 about British foreign policy since 1956. Very well-reviewed book. Very, It's quite theoretical, and um, uh, you have to be quite a, a foreign expert, I think, to get the most out of it. Um, he, he, interestingly... At that point, his editor um, goes to see him in, in Moscow to, to work on the text. And he says then I, he, how much he loathes spying. I, he, he says it's like being a lavatory attendant. It's a filthy job, but someone has to do it, which I think also gives uh, why he, 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 in his latter days as a spy, couldn't keep it together is because he actually loathed the deception of the whole operation of spying, unlike Kim Philby, who reveled in the devilment. What happened to Melinda after her affair with Philby, and what happened to the children? Did they go back to London? She goes back to, uh, they, she lives in the same building as Donald McLean, but doesn't, uh, they don't live together. In the 1970s, they all go, all three children are married to Russians, there's a few Russian grandchildren apart around. But in the 1970s, they all leave Russia forever. One comes to England, one son and his family come to England. Melinda and the other two children uh, go to the United States. And McLean is left alone. I think he, he didn't mind as much. I mean, he minded on a personal level deeply. But it also feels to me from one or two of the family letters I've read as if he was in some way relieved that his children were living the lives they should have lived, um, to his mind, if he hadn't been a spy. All right. Last word, Roland. I mean, he's an idealist to the end. I mean, the mm -hmm. house divided against itself has been unified. And, and what's your last word on this story? This is a wonderful story, the way you tell it. And, and what's your... Your final word. My final word is that 
he's very much a man of his times, a man um, buffeted by history. Um, he he took the right decision in the, to my mind, um, the the uh, to be to be on the left in the 1930s when it was the only decent uh, alternative. He his his love of theoretical. I mean, he always and his book says. It still says communism is the only way to world peace and equality. I found myself, I came to admire that integrity as I uh, lived with McLean during the writing of the book. And I thought, what a remarkable, I mean, he could have had a outstanding British career and ended up in the House of Lords and all the rest of it. But he, he stuck to his conscience, the conscience instilled in him by his father, and lived the life he really believed in. Well, thank you. Thank you, Roland Phillips, for writing the book, A Spy Named Orphan, The Enigma of Don McLean, and, and thank you for talking to us uh, on The World in Time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.